Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash. <laughs> but you, you do know that after he got out of prison, he shows up at your workplace. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. And we're coming back at you this week with our two-parter of J.C. Dugard. J.C. Lee Dugard, which almost makes her sound like a serial killer. <laughs> because it's always the serial killers that have the, they always like specify the three names because otherwise their names are too common. And wow. Every, yeah. You don't want to get confused with some serial killer. Yeah, all those Ted Bundys out there that aren't, wait. Ted Bundy doesn't have, like, a known middle name. All those John Gacy's out there. And all those Ed Geens and Leather Faces. Yeah. Leather Faces popular. So how about that uh, awesome song there at the beginning, Kevin? You want to tell us about it? Philip. Gerardo? Garrido. Garrido. Philip Garrido. Real piece of work. That's what this episode is going to be focusing on. And his lovely bride, Nancy Garrido. What a pair of pieces of shit. That's right. You heard it here <laughs> that's first. The, that's the official... Uh, Breaking news. That's the official opinion of the True Crime Dumpster. Nancy and Philip Garrido are humongous pieces of shit that will rot in hell for all times. Well, we could only hope. Well, that's it. Have a nice week. See you next uh, time <laughs> where we talk out the trash. Uh, just kidding. So tell us about some. So there's definitely some stuff that happens prior to J.C. Lee Dugard. I'm just going to refer, refer to her as J.C. There's definitely some stuff that happens prior to her abduction. And you're going to tell us about that, right? I'm going to try. All right, let's go. That's for what it. I'm here yeah. to do. Yep. I've filled out another report. <laughs> yeah, you did your book report. Yeah. So th- in this installment of... Kevin he- does his homework. Hellfuckers book report. <laughs> uh, Philip Garrido, born in Pittsburgh, California. That's right. California, not Pennsylvania. No steel. April 5th, 1951. A psychiatrist, Lynn Garreau Jr. wrote about Garrido in a mental evaluation that he had, quote, considerable emotional conflict. You don't fucking say. <laughs> with his parents in his formative years. A sexual deviant, a heavy drug user, and he was guided by the light. That's right. He found God, apparently. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure at what point. but I think at lots of different points. He definitely had a weird black box that he could talk to angels to with whatever, you know. Who doesn't have that? It's called an iPhone. <laughs> it was just an. It was just like an early model of the iPhone. <laughs> His sexual addiction was so bad that he would masturbate in drive-in theaters, restaurants, bars, public restrooms, and my personal favorite, outside the windows of people's houses. Ew. Yeah. Ugh. Court records show he graduated high school in 1969. How sexy, Ol. A month later, he tried marijuana for the first time. 
A month after that, he tried LSD. That's quite a jump. I did the opposite. I know, which is weird. He was arrested in 1969 for having weed and LSD and Hmm. spent some time at the Contra Costa County's Clayton Farm Facility. Wow. Fucking try to say that three times fast. County's Clayton Farm. Well, those hard C's aren't that hard to say. Haikus. That's not a haiku. That would be five <laughs> syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. That would be alliteration, my friend. English teacher here. Yeah, English teacher here. In not, ni- not there. <laughs> <laughs> In 1972, Garrido married his high school sweetheart. In 1972, he also was arrested for drugging and raping a 14-year-old girl. Ugh. Charges were dropped because the victim refused to testify. Ugh. So in 1976, Katie Calloway, 25, stopped at, I think it was a gas station or a supermarket. Supermarket. Okay, supermarket. To pick up, she was picking up some groceries to take to her boyfriend's house for dinner. Yep, her boyfriend, David Wade. Mm -hmm. And she was about to back up in her car when a well-dressed, quote, well-dressed man Knocked on her passenger side window. Tell him to fuck off. That's what I say. Wait, so that's a great. So she's philosophy. the one driving. She was driving. She was leaving uh, the store. Oh, okay. From my intensive research. Okay. Of Wikipedia. <laughs> no, see, I've got my. Uh, oh, Seattle here. Times. Wow. Yeah, Seattle and Biography dot com. Good job. They never lie. I, yeah. So, as she's trying to leave, this so-called well-dressed man knocks on the window. Isn't that a ZZ Top song? It's part of a ZZ Top. Okay. You don't distract me. I'm with sorry. <laughs> beer drinkers and hell raisers. Um, so he points at this Mercedes Benz that's parked in the parking lot, and he says that's his car, and it's broken down. He just needs a ride up the street to his house. It's, it's supposed to be really close, and. Callaway agrees, which, I mean, it is 1976. Yeah. Giving people quick rides to things and stuff. It's They didn't have the 24-hour news cycle like how we do today. And just people I don't think very many other. people will have seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre at this point. Yeah. So I mean, they don't know to not pick like up Northern, the fucked up. Yeah, this is Northern California, which now is definitely something else. But I think at the time it was kind of like country-ish, you know? And, like, it, it isn't unheard of to be kind of, like, stranded and need the help of a stranger. Lots of open spaces here in sunny old California. So she agrees to give him a ride. And he is directing her to his house, and he directs her to this empty lot. And when she turns to ask him about it, like, what the fuck? Oh, God, yeah. Garita reaches over and turns off the engine. And then uh. he grabbed her by the neck and held her hands. And then he said, quote, if you do everything I say, you won't get hurt. He also told her that he was serious. So Garrido handcuffed her, put a leather belt around her neck and under her knees so she couldn't Wait, look up. Wait, didn't he smash her head into the dashboard? Yeah, yeah, he did do that too. Okay. That Like she was like kind of stunned and like in pain. Yeah. And so it was kind of easy to get her to do a lot of things because she was so fucking... Just alarmed and didn't know what was going on. Some yeah. So somehow he handcuffs her and he gets this leather belt around her neck and under her knees, so she's kind of like in this like weird position. She can't look up. And then he gets her in the passenger seat and throws a coat over her and begins driving. Uh, while Garrido drove them to this storage locker that he had all picked out. He was telling Calloway about all his sexual fantasies. Mm. So he brings her to this storage unit. And inside the unit, behind some heavy plastic sheeting. Totally like Dexter style there. Yeah. uh, Was this mattress all lit up with red, blue, and yellow stage lights. a, A movie projector and a stack of porno mags. And, like, his bandmates at the time, uh, which I think they had kicked him out of the band at this point because he's a fucking weirdo, 
this was kind of seen as maybe a potential practice space. So like they knew that he was kind of building this weird little shed, but they thought it was going to be like a jam room. That's why it was all soundproofed and everything. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was also some weed, some cheap wine, and a bucket for Callaway to use as a toilet. Garrido is also apparently on four hits of LSD, which he later tried to use in his defense. Yeah. Claiming like insanity or some shit. Fuck you. Yep. So he raped Callaway for five and a half hours while the radio blasted. And he made her drink some of the wine and smoke hash. Reno police officer Clifford Conrad noticed a car parked at this spot. Uh, had been there for a long time. Yeah, and kind of at a weird hour, too. Yeah, and he noticed also that the padlock was broken on the front. So he banged on the door, and Greedo answered only wearing jeans. Officer Conrad began questioning Greedo when Calloway poked her head out from behind the plastic sheeting. Quote, she said, help me, she said. Help me, and then she ran out from behind this place. And she's, like, naked, right? Yeah. yeah. And that was what Conrad said in his testimony. Mm-hmm. Garrido was sentenced, so he's obviously yeah. arrested. Yeah, and, like, the, he was trying to say that that was, like, his girlfriend or wife and that they were, like, playing around and that she wasn't being serious. And this guy was like, nah, fuck you. I'm arresting you. Like, so fucking luckily, because this could have gone in a very, very different, weird direction, which it's already fucking terrible as it is, but at least she fucking got away. And if it wasn't yeah. for that police officer, she'd be dead or held captive for Who years. Who knows, yeah. Yeah, I don't even want to, yeah. So, Garrido was sentenced to 50 years in federal prison for kidnapping. And then another five years to life on state charges of sexual assault. So, two different but things But wait a minute, this there. is only the f- beginning of the story. How did he get out in so much less time? Yeah, so there's two different things going on here, and it gets a little confusing, and so I think he kind of slips through the cracks here. So Garrido served 11 years on the federal kidnapping charges in Kansas uh, before being released to Nevada State Prison in January 1988. Isn't that where he met his true love? He meets her in Kansas, yes. Yeah, so like he becomes... yeah. He becomes, like, friends with another inmate who is a Jehovah's Witness, I think. I'm not sure. And the Jehovah's Witness dude, like, gets him into religion even more so in, like, a weirder direction. And the other inmate's niece comes to visit, and it's Nancy, her mater... I don't even... I I don't give a fuck enough about Nancy and Philip to get any of their fucking facts straight because they're the biggest pieces of shit on earth. She's just as bad as him. Yeah. But anyways, she had a different fucking name, but she walked in and the inmate dude that was next to Philip was like, hey, that's my hot niece. You want to you want a piece of that? And so they get fucking married. Isn't that weird? They get married like he know this fucking inmate knows that Philip Garrido is a violent rapist. And he's all like, let me hook you up with my niece. And they fall in love and get married while he's in prison and she waits for him. What? Love. Knows no bounds. Yep. Love. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's not love. It's fucking sick. So he... Sorry, keep going. (laughs) uh, He's sent to uh, the Nevada State Prison uh, in January 1988 for the sexual assault charges. So Mm -hmm. it goes from federal to state uh, charges now. And the state charges were a sentence of five to life. But because his 11 years in federal prison... But then then they're like, oh, is that 0.5? Yeah, he just has to stay for a few months. (laughs) Fuck. Well, so his 11 years in federal prison counted as time served. Oh, so it was... um, And so he was eligible for parole as soon as he arrived in Carson City. Yeah, uh, which was January at, 22nd. So it's not, it was supposed to be probably consecutively, but instead they did it concurrently. Something those happened. Two, those two tricky words. Concurrently means at the same time. And then so, um, the other one is one after the other. Right. Yeah. So they probably accidentally made it concurrently, which is something they do in Canada a lot. Oh, really? They, they do concurrent sentences. 
We do um, consecutive life Oh, sentences. I thought you were talking about mi mixing them up. No, in Canada, Robert Picton, the oh. pig farmer guy, he was charged with like six or seven and put away on six or seven murders. Right. But all of the, it's they're concurrent. So that's why they held back on so many of the murder charges is because just in case, like if one falls through, then like a lot can happen. Like no he double could potentially, jeopardy. he could potentially get out. So that's why they hold back. They hold. They don't charge they, them with everything at once. Yeah, they held back a bunch of the charges just in case because of the concurrent sentences as opposed to the consecutive. If he had gotten consecutive life sentences, he would be in li for life no matter what. But with the concurrent, it's tricky. It's easier to potentially get out on appeal, I think, or out on parole. So August 1st, 1988, the Nevada Parole Board... By a vote of three to two. I want to know who that fucking th that dude is. <laughs> no shit. Fucking right. they send released... him a very strong worded letter and Ooh. a pile of poop. Uh, asshole. So they release Garrido. That's why Amy's so, so fired fucking up. Fucking stupid. Uh, and then he goes to terrorize fucking Katie. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> so he was technically on parole in Nevada, but federal parole took precedence and he moved to California. I'm not sure how all this works, but... So he remained on federal parole until I 1988. I don't think they know either. When the federal hold ended. It ended in 1988. Uh, his Nevada parole uh, was still in effect, but supervision fell to the California Department of Parole and Probation. Well, because he lived in California. Apparently, this was possible because California and Nevada have some sort of cooperative mm -hmm. agreement. Mm -hmm. Still... I don't know. Uh, 1993, Garrido violated his parole, but Nevada officials never were notified. He did spend four months in federal prison in California because of this violation, though it's unclear what the violation was. Hmm. Although Garrido had been convicted of a sex crime, there apparently was no ban on him having contact with children, nor restrictions on his travels. And that seems a little weird. Yeah. To me. Yeah. Wait, was that it? That's what. Well, oh, I was going to. You didn't talk about how he went. So at this point, when he gets out after 11 years, so Katie Calloway is thinking, oh, he's getting 50 years, probably yeah. life. Because it was a fucking violent, violent rape and assault, you know? And it was kidnapping. It was like a lot. It was a lot of charges altogether. So she genuinely did not think she was ever going to see this motherfucker again. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so here she is. Is this in South Tahoe or Reno? Reno. Reno. So she's like a dealer, uh, like a card dealer in Reno. And she's working. And he fucking comes up to her fucking table. And he like orders a drink. And he says something like, this is the first drink I've had in the last 11 years since I've seen you or something. And she looks and it's fucking him. Yeah. And he's like, see you around, Katie. And he fucking walks away. That's so fucking crazy. Fucking asshole. Wait, oh, I think she immediately moved away from the area. I mean, this woman never really felt safe ever again. It just kind of goes to show there, there's no fucking insanity there. There's no, LSD did not fucking play a part in his fucking evil. He is a sick man who gets off on terrorizing people, whether it's sexually, mentally, psychologically, just in every fucking way. He's a fucking sycophant. So most of the information I got from my section, which really focuses on J.C. Dugard and her abduction and all of her story, came from her book, which is really, really ma amazing. And it's called A Stolen Life. And she wrote it within two years of being rescued. And I have big chunks kind of similar to the, the Michelle Knight and Amanda Berry and Gina De Jesus's book. I'm going to have big chunks of it because I, I just find that it's hard to just summarize these survivors' words without just giving it to you guys. So I, I kind of kept some of the chunks down. The very intro of her book, she says, let's get one thing straight. My name is J.C. Lee Dugard. I was kidnapped by a stranger at age 11. For 18 years, I was kept in a backyard and not allowed to say my own name. 
What follows will be my personal story of how one fateful day in June of 1991 changed my life forever. I decided to write this book for two reasons. One reason is that Philip Garrido believes no one should find out what he did to an 11-year-old girl, me. He also believes he is not responsible for his actions. I believe differently. I believe that everyone should know exactly what he and his wife, Nancy, were doing all of those years in the backyard. I believe I shouldn't be ashamed for what happened to me, and I want Philip Garrido to know that I, am no long- that I no longer have to keep his secret and that he is most certainly responsible for stealing my life and the life I should have had with my family. And then I skip some parts. After 18 years of living with tremendous stress, cruelty, loneliness, repetition, and boredom, each day now brings a new challenge and a new experience to look forward to. And one of the questions she asks towards the end of her intro is, ask yourself, what would you do to survive? What would you do, Kevin? I don't know. What would you do for a Klondike bar? I would rip some faces off. <laughs> Just for an ice cream sandwich? Yeah. Yeah. I If I wasn't, I would have done exactly what JC did, which is survive. I think one of the reasons she wrote her intro, too, to be like, let's get fucking things straight. This is who I am. And I hate Philip Greedo, basically, is because a lot of people, and it's fucking the same thing with the Castro girls, which I fucking hate calling them that. I need to not call them that. They're just a lot. Their names are a lot. Okay. The people in the Cleveland House of Horrors and they very much get raked over the coals in the media of like saying, oh, well, why didn't you just escape from the house? Like, what's wrong with you? Oh, Stockholm Syndrome. You loved your captor and all this stuff, you know, and very much so that happened because she had two of his kids and. she's just so fucking tired of hearing Stockholm Syndrome. She's like, I didn't have fucking Stockholm Syndrome. I had fucking survivor's instinct, and I didn't want to fuck. She did have hope. She wanted to see her mother again, and luckily, unlike Amanda Berry, who didn't get the fucking opportunity to see her mom again, she did have the opportunity, and they're, like, living this beautiful, wonderful life. Spoiler alert. She gets out, and she lives a beautiful, wonderful life, potentially in Ojai, but I don't want to out her, so don't go looking for her, Okay. But the Diane Sawyer interview that I watched with her new life now after the $20 million settlement she gets from the state of California for every fuck up under the sun, Hmm. she really does look like she has a pretty great life now. And she's just the most lovely human being on earth. Like, it's fucking insane how happy and sweet she is. There is not one mean bone in that body. And, like, barely any, like regret or guilt or anything she just doesn't focus on the past anymore she's just like fuck that part of my life i'm only looking forward and i just fucking love her for that all right so let's talk about that fateful day in 1991 and again most of the information i get from the beginning here is mostly from her book jc woke up extra early on the morning of june 10th 1991 to get her kiss goodbye from her mom she heard the front door close before she got up Oh, well, she'd get a kiss from her later that night instead. Her mom is going to regret that. She was going to wake her up. Like, she she didn't want to wake her up, and she was leaving really early for work. And so she decides mm. not to bother her daughter. So she doesn't actually get to say goodbye when she had the opportunity. And JC, like, got up to say goodbye to her mom. Her biggest struggle in the morning was trying to find a ring that she had bought at the fair but couldn't find it. So instead, she settled on the ring that her mother had given her for her seventh birthday. It was made of silver, very tiny and delicate, in the shape of a butterfly to match the birthmark on her right, uh, on the right, on some some part of her body. Sorry, <laughs> no, I forgot to write that part, on her right. She was um, at home with her stepfather, Car- Carl Probin, who we're going to talk about a little bit. She thought her stepdad didn't like her and was overly critical of her. Not so a be- stepdad's name is Carl Probin? Yeah. Probin. P-R-O-B-Y-N. Yikes. (laughs) He doesn't sound like the worst guy in the world, but he just sounds like he just sounds like he didn't want JC there because she grew up in Anaheim, California, and then they moved up to the South Tahoe area with him because that's where he was from and that's where he wanted to live. And he had this new baby, this new wife, and he had this new life and Everything was great. And then there's like this 11-year-old kid. And I think he's kind of irritated by JC. I don't think he's abusive i think he might be a little neglectful 
But she definitely is not trying to say she had like a terrible childhood or anything like that. If anything, she kind of wants to dispel the myth that people who are abducted uh, are from, you know, broken homes or from places that are unhappy. She had a fairly happy childhood. She had everything that she wanted. She just wasn't crazy about her stepdad. And I don't think he was crazy about her either. Well, that's good. (laughs) She thought her stepdad didn't like her and was overly critical of her, like I said. She tiptoed around him, hoping to not aggravate or annoy him. JC has a baby sister, 18 months old, and her biggest wish is to have a dog and name it Buddy. I mean, these are the fucking things that she's thinking of. You know what I mean? It's kind of similar yeah, to like the 11. Gina Gina de Jesus like thing where, you know, she was 14 when she was abducted. And like her biggest thing was like, oh, is the radio station tuned to the you know, so I can sing along to songs on my way to school. Like that was her biggest worry was like, oh, am I going to be able to go roller skating with my BFF on Friday? Like that's that should be your fucking biggest worry when you're 11, 14 years old. You know, she had a cat named Monkey. (laughs) She wanted to name the cat Sapphire since it was all black. But Carl thought it was a stupid name and named it Monkey. Because that's that's not a stupid name. (laughs) Yeah. They also have a black and white dwarf rabbit named Muggsy, who loves grape-flavored popsicles. He poops a lot. He I'm can't... surprised they didn't call the rabbit Camel or something. <laughs> he came with Carl. So that's Carl's dwarf rabbit that joined the family. And he and she loves the rabbit. She makes her own lunch, a PB&J. Part of the reason she does this is because Carl's like, you're a picky eater. Like, he doesn't like the way she eats. And, like, one night she was eating in a quote-unquote, like, annoying way. And he made her go eat her dinner in the bathroom facing the mirror so she could see how annoying she was. <laughs> like, that's the kind of shit he would do to her is, like, say that the that, name, yeah. um, that that Sapphire is a stupid name and then make her eat her dinner in the bath. Like, it's, it's emotionally abusive. But, again, like, he wasn't, like, beating the shit out of her or anything like that. So I don't want to, like, paint Carl in this, like, terrible, you know, light or anything. He was winning no Stepfather of the Year award. Probin. Mm-hmm. So all morning long, she never sees him. He's home. Uh, he used to drive her to school, but then he was annoyed by it. Weird, huh? And yeah. says, you know, you're old enough to be walking to the bus stop alone. <laughs> yeah. Turns out. So she leaves the house never having seen him, but she sees that the garage door is open and the car is like out. So she's like, oh, he's probably working on the car. She doesn't even like go to say goodbye to him or anything. Like they just they just sound like they're roommates. They're not family, really. So a couple driving a gunmetal gray sedan begin following her as she leaves her house on foot. Her stepfather is still in sight at this point. He actually sees all of this happen. Yep. Ugh. Philip slows down to ask JC for directions, and he's one of the people in the car. She comes closer to the car and feels an electrical zap. She wets herself and is immediately pulled into the car. A blanket is thrown over her head, and they speed off. JC Lee is snatched just 1,500 feet away from her home. Carl attempted to chase the couple on his bicycle. So his car isn't working at this point. That's why he's out in the garage working on it. So he jumps and he desperately pedals to try to catch up, but he never is able to. He does get the description of the car, though. He didn't get the license, though, right? No, he he didn't get any of it, but that's how they know it was a gunmetal gray sedan, though. What's also crazy, too, and I, I saw it in a couple different spots, is that because she was so close to the bus stop... Some of Dugard's classmates were also witnesses to the abduction, so they saw it happen too, which has got to be fucking traumatic, you know? That's fucking crazy. Yeah. It's fucking crazy that so many people saw it happen, and people could see the couple. They're like, it was a man and a woman, and they got, like, a make and model of the car and all the shit, and then just, like, nothing ever happened with it. It's so frustrating, and I know... That her mother was fucking just like beating her head into the wall. She's just like, how can so many people have seen what happened to my daughter, but nobody can like help? It's crazy. Yeah. Initial suspects included Carl Probin and Ken Slayton, Dugard's biological father, who they did not know each other at all. And Slayton Slayton, um, only had a very brief relationship with Terry in 1979. They didn't even get married or anything. He didn't even know he had a child. And there's some 
I didn't really look too much into it because there's too many other things to look into. But I'm pretty sure he tried to kind of capitalize off of her when she when she got that $20 million settlement for the state of California. He came a knocking yeah, and he definitely course. tried to do some interviews and stuff to make money. And then all of a sudden, like his like two ugly fat daughters, which I feel bad saying that I shouldn't say that because I, I haven't watched any interviews. But like all these fucking people who didn't know JC at all. It started coming out of the woodwork, doing like paid interviews and shit on television. It just feels very like fucking yeah. It's so gross. Sorry if you're nice people, but you don't look very nice. And so there, there. <laughs> <laughs> By the time the Garritos arrived to their home in the unincorporated area of Contra Costa County. They removed Dugard's clothing, leaving only the, the ring that she hid from them for the next 18 years. So that ring that she was wearing that morning was the only thing she had from her past at all, even including her name. She wasn't allowed to use her name. Taking her from their car to the property, Garrido placed a blanket over Dugard's head and ushered her into the area of his backyard where sheds and storage units stood placing her inside a tiny one that was soundproofed. I've read reports saying it was about a 10 foot by 10 foot room and she would remain there for quite a while. One thing I really liked about her memoir that is unique um, is the different kind of aspects. Like it's not just a straight story. She has these little reflection notes from her therapist. So her therapist actually helped her write this book. Mm. And so she, in between chapters, has these things called reflections and they're specifically kind of like these aha moments that she has with her therapist. I'm not going to share all of them, obviously, because there's like 20 of them. But I really like the first one. She says, since my return back into the world, I find myself collecting pine cones. I ask the people I know when they go on trips to bring me back a pine cone. I have pine cones from Lake Placid, Maine, and Oregon. My therapist and I finally solved my obsession. A pine cone was the last thing I touched before I was taken away by Philip. A hard and sticky pine cone was my last grip on freedom before 18 years in captivity. So, yeah, I just thought that was very, like, sweet. She just seems like a 100% pure, you know? And that's why it's just like, and Philip Garrido is 100% not. Like, he's the most disgusting human being on earth. And it just sucks that, like, I mean, it's not like, I would want him to get some other girl who sucks or something like that. I mean, you could even, I don't want to compare her to anybody else, but she is just like this fucking, she had one of the most recognizable faces of the 90s. Her face was everywhere with her little braid and her, it was like her school picture from like fourth grade or something, fourth or fifth grade. And she's just this little, you know, toothy, cute, blonde girl that, her face was just fucking everywhere and she was this totally i mean she loved butterflies and the color pink and barbies and she was a girl scout mm -hmm. she's just like a hundred percent wholesome which again like that's the kind of shit that sells because then everybody's like how on earth could this perfect little girl get snatched you know yeah you know pine cone <laughs> yes pine cone like the symbology of pine cone is uh supposed to be a symbol of the pineal gland the third eye. Mm. Interesting. You could definitely read into that some more, but I won't because I'm tired. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome for that arcane knowledge. You got that Back to the Dracula? story. Yeah. <laughs> He's, ah, ah, ah. He takes off her clothes. Oh. All right. Okay, what? Sorry, yeah, sorry. Why? So he's in this, they're in the shed together. It Remember, it's June in California. I mean, it's Northern California, so it's not quite as hot as Southern California, but it's fucking hot and stuffy. There's no windows or anything. Well, it gets hot in the day, and then it gets fucking cold at night. Yeah, and he takes off her clothes and his clothes, and he makes her touch him. So this is day one. She hates it, and she says she even laughs at it. And she says she's always had this nervous thing that she laughs when she feels uncomfortable, which I do I do that too. It's so foreign to her. She has literally never thought about a man like that. She said that, like, when she would play with her Barbie dolls when she was younger, she, like, knew that, like, having a sexy time was a thing. But she, what that meant was that, like, Barbie and Ken went to bed like literally just sat next to each other in bed and that yeah, was like a sexy 11 time. yeah 11 11 and there's no internet yet internet actually will pay play yeah, an 11 part. here in, in the year 2020 is kind of like 
40. It's and... like 39 and a half. <laughs> I like how it couldn't be 40, <laughs> like I just said. <laughs> he brings her food, uh, fast food and soda once a day. It's insanely hot in the room. Mm, fast food and soda. What that sounds like what fucking yeah, Ariel Castro would bring. Diet. Except for Ariel Castro would wait like a good day or two before he actually gave it to them. So he was really into giving them rotten food. He's just uh, I fucking hate him too. All right. She becomes totally dependent on him for emptying the bucket, bringing her food and for taking off the cuffs for her to give her raw wrists a rest. Why did I write that sentence with so much so much alliteration? <laughs> Raw wrists arrest. Yeah. Even though they are covered in soft fur. Okay, so yeah, the fucking handcuffs that he uses, I think he uses them Katie oh, like Calloway too. They're like furry, yeah, like from Hot Topic or something. From Spartacus in Portland, yeah. Oregon. <laughs> but they're still hurting her. And so she, not only is she in this 10 by 10 unventilated room, in the middle of summer in California, but she's also handcuffed the entire time he's not there. So she starts to connect being freed of the handcuffs and being satiated by something to eat. She completely relates that to Philip, which is why I I find it fucking irritating as fuck when people are like, oh, she fell in love with her abductor. It's like, no, when you're 100% dependent on your abductor, you don't love them, you just fucking need them. And that's what you do for fucking survival. She has an active imagination, which she said was a very good thing. It, it used to get her in trouble with like her stepdad and like school a little bit because she was constantly wanting to play games and she would make up crazy stories. And like she had a very active imagination. But she said that those things, having the active imagination and stuff, is really what helped her stay alive in that shitty shed. Yeah, I bet. So her thoughts kept her from being lonely too often. She also slept a lot during this time because she said it was the only way that she wasn't heartbroken all the time. And then she says, all this makes me so sad. She said in her dream she could fly. So she just wanted to be asleep all the time. Mm, that's yeah. so 11. I get it. Yeah, it's so fucked up. When Philip came, she often smiled, not only because this was her only human contact, but she said she felt the need to please him. Because again, fucking eleven, you don't you don't know pure evil yet. You have to wait. You have to wait till you're like twenty four for that. Right. <laughs> twenty four. Yeah, specifically, June twelfth, nineteen ninety one. Clutching her daughter's stuffed pink bunny rabbit, J.C. Lee's mother, Terry Probin goes before reporters and television cameras to plead for her daughter's safe return. A car fitting the description of the suspect's vehicle with a young girl sleeping in the backseat is spotted at Fallen Leaf Lake. Nothing comes of it. So she took the last name too? Uh, well, that was her husband. Probin? Terry you Probin. You didn't take my last name. Yeah, because it's fucking hideous. What if Sorry. it was Probin? Sorry, no one of your, last, your family is listening. Oh, Kim, Kim, maybe. Kim, I love you. You have, an, you you have an ugly last name. <laughs> oh, did you hear that? <laughs> Mine's too good. I can't give it up. Because if I was Schrudel Camp, not to like totally out you there, but I would just be Ms. S at school. I don't want to be Ms. S. No one, no one would Make say my say name. Make Say my name. That's right, bitch. <laughs> What's crazy, too, is that just four days ap- after her abduction, her case is profiled in America's Most Wanted, which is awesome. In some ways, I, I just was surprised that it was such a quick turnaround. And it resulted in 100 tips to police, but obviously none of them came to fruition. He keeps her in that shed for a week before raping her for the first time. Uh, this, this little anecdote right here is fucking crazy. Are you ready? So he brings her a milkshake and promises to give it to her after. After what, she thinks. After raping her. She has never even heard the word rape before which he does. Afterwards, she can't even think about the milkshake. She's bleeding and crying and doesn't understand why he hurt her so much. She doesn't even know that that that, that was a sexual act. And he basically leaves her like a bucket of water and a rag and he says, wash up, you're disgusting. And then she's like, why am I bleeding? And he's like, because I popped your cherry. And she has no idea what that means. It's so gross. Yeah. Oh, I guess we should probably have a disclaimer on this. People know all of our episodes are fucked up. Sorry. Okay. 
He leaves her naked in the structure, which he bolted shut, warning her that Doberman pinchers were outside and trained to attack her if she tried to escape. And she believed him because, again, she's fucking 11. All right. So this is continuation of afterward. And this is a chunk from her memoir. I can't believe how much I came to rely on him for everything. And again, this speaks to that whole, oh, oh, she had Stockholm Syndrome and couldn't leave him. No, she literally was reliant on him 100%. To stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the heat was getting really bad, and I was so thankful to him when he finally installed an air conditioning unit. It seemed he had an answer for everything. Philip seemed like a nice guy when he wasn't using me for sex. I even started to enjoy his company. I was naive and desperately lonely. I was locked in a room all by myself for days on end, and he was my only contact with the outside world. All I could do was survive and endure. Hours later, as I lay staring at the ceiling, I noticed the forgotten milkshake has enticed the ants to come. I regret not drinking it now because I am so hungry. My stomach is growling at me. There's a long trail of ants that leads from the window to the milkshake. Some have ventured further, and now I think they are starting to explore me. Maybe I smell so bad it's attracting them. I don't know how long it's been since I've had a shower. I haven't had one since the first day when he made me get in the shower with him. Since then, the only cleanup I've had is with the bucket of water. The ants make my skin itch even worse than the unclean than my unclean body already does, and sometimes they get in my mouth and leave a spicy flavor behind. Ugh. I know. The cuffs make it near impossible to scratch and flick them away. I wish I could just get in a nice hot bath and just soak all the grime away. Fucking hell. I know. It's just that that milkshake like comes back like it's like it reminds me of I think it's Christmas morning or something. And I think it's either Amanda Berry or Michelle Knight. Like he brings her a cake. It's either her birthday or Christmas. And he brings like a cake and he goes, You can have it after. And she's like, I don't fucking want it. Like and she and she like watches that cake rot basically because she's like, I'm not going to fucking eat that. It's rape cake, basically, you know? I'm not going to fucking eat that shit. Almost a month and a half after the kidnapping, Garrido moved her to a larger room next door where she was handcuffed to the bed. He explained that the demon angels let him take her and that she should help him with his sexual problems because society has ignored him. Rightfully so. He would go on crank binges he called quote-unquote runs during which he would make Dugard put on makeup and dress her up and spend time with her while cutting out figures of pornographic magazines. He made her listen for the voices he said he could hear coming from the walls. Yeah, he sounds real fucking together. Garrido also often professed the belief that he was a chosen servant of God. Because that's the kind of servant that God would want to serve him. Well, I don't know if you've... I don't know if you know God. Church, but well, yeah. If those are fucking servants of God, then God likes fucking little boys. You know what I've come to realize is up is down, and down is up, and good is bad, and bad is good. Yep. Welcome to this world. Welcome to the jungle, baby. These binges would end with him sobbing and apologizing to Dugard, alternating between threats to sell her to people who would put her in a cage. And profusely apologizing. Seven months into her, her captivity, Garrido introduced Dugard to his wife, Nancy, number two piece of shit, who brought the child a stuffed animal and chocolate milk and engaged in the same tearful apologies to her. Yeah, she's a slimy snatch. And that reminds me, this part really reminds me of Elizabeth Smart because Philip Garrido and whoever abducted. Elizabeth Smart, I'm forgetting his piece of shit name. Who cares? Fucking seriously, who the fuck cares about those people? They're very, very similar where it's like, I'm a mouthpiece of God and here's my piece of shit wife who is just as, almost just as bad as me, who is totally complicit in all of this. Yeah, like, I'm good with God, so I can do all this fucking stuff. Yeah. God, blah, blah, blah. But the crazy thing about Elizabeth Smart's female abductor was she's out. Yeah. What what's up with that shit? She turned on her husband and so she got a deal. 
So she, and then she got out, I think, on good behavior or something. So she only served. Is she working for Child Protective Services? God, probably. You got to love that. They probably like made her a foster parent or something because they're because the fucking world is shit. Like I said, (laughs) up is down. Down is up. Got it. Heaven and hell. Okay. Though Dugard craved the woman's approval at the time, in retrospect, she has stated that she was manipulated by Nancy, who alternated between motherly concern and coldness and cruelty expressing her jealousy of Dugard. Part of that is because Nancy could not have kids and Philip wanted kids. Of course he did because he's a fucking pervert, but she was not able to conceive. There, there are conflicting reports on like JC being his like spiritual wife and giving him children wow. and stuff like that. And like Nancy was his like human. The universe wife. was like, you fuckos don't get kids. Yeah, that's... Right. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna sew that vag up. Yeah. So no yeah. kids for you, Nancy. Dugard characterized Nancy, who worked as a nursing home aide, as evil and twisted in later reports. When Garrido was returned to prison for failing a drug test, Nancy replaced her husband as Dugard's jailer. She could have fucking let her go at this point and probably gotten like a fucking deal, you know, if she turned. But she kept her prisoner. The Garritos manipulated Dugard further by presenting her on two occasions with kittens that would later mysteriously vanish. And JC loved kittens. She loved kittens and dogs and everything. And they just like fucking tormented her. Very similar to fucking Ariel Castro, who yeah. gave her a dog and then killed it. Yeah, totally. Fucking assholes. When they discovered that she was signing her real name in the journal she kept about the kittens, she kept a journal just for the kittens. Like, cute things that they did that day and stuff. Ugh. She's, like, 100% pure, right? Who? What wonderful little child keeps? Probably me. But I probably kept a journal about my dog, Pecco. I definitely did. But she keeps a journal just to, like, document, you know, the, these kittens' lives. I've... A lot of these people that prey on these good kids, they have... They're vampires. They have these fucking crazy dark souls. They're, that they're feed, soul vampires. They feed on that energy. It's fucking crazy. They're not human. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think, and again, I am not saying anything fucked up about Michelle Knight at all because she is such a fucking, he, like, and I know her, her name is Lily something. And I know, like, it's just because everything we've read and researched was Michelle Knight. And she very, very recently changed her name. Yeah, Lily Rose. It's like two two flowers put together, yeah. But I think that's one of the reasons that, and again, I fucking hate that this is true, but it probably is. The reason he treated her so badly is that she ended up not being the captive, you know, the captive kid that he wanted. He wanted like a pure, perfect, little cute thing that was pure that he could hurt. And when he found out she was this 21-year-old mom, he was pissed. He just took out his rage on her. That's I, I think that's why she was treated the worst. So when they find this journal about the kittens, she signed her real name, and they ripped out the pages with her name on it, and they said, you can't ever write that name ever again. Almost three years into her captivity, the Greedos began to allow Dugard freedom from her handcuffs for periods of time, though they kept her locked in the bolted room. On April 3rd, 1994, Easter Sunday, they gave her cooked food for the first time. They informed her that they believed that she was pregnant. JC, 13 years old and four and a half months pregnant, had learned of the link between sex and pregnancy from television. Dugard watched programs on childbirth in preparation for the birth of her first daughter, which she refers to her daughters in the book, which I thought was fairly, you know, like she wants to very much protect their identities. She refers to them as A and G. So one of the daughters was born on August 18th, 1994. Her second daughter was born when Dugard was 17 on November 13th, 1997. Dugard took care of her daughters using information learned from television, working to protect them from Garrido, who continued his enraged rants and lectures. He also hoped that he would not hurt his own daughters, which luckily it seems that he never did. 
neighbor Patrick McQuaid said that he recalls a child meeting Dugard through a fence in the Garrido's yard soon after the kidnapping. He said that she had identified herself by the name J.C. At that point, Garrido came out and took her back indoors. He eventually built an eight-foot-tall fence around the backyard and set up a tent for Dugard the first time that she was allowed to walk outside since her kidnapping. She coped with her continued captivity by planting flowers in a garden and homeschooling her daughters. At one point, Garrido informed Dugard that to pacify his wife, J.C. and her daughters were to address Nancy as their mother and that J.C. was to teach her daughters that J.C. was her, their older sister. Yeah. Once the second child started growing up, Nancy wanted J.C. to figure out a new name since she would be mommy. J.C. would be their older sister. And this is straight from her memoir. She says, after a couple of days of thinking, I decide on my new name and tell Philip and Nancy my choice. I say I want to be called Alyssa. I used to love to watch the show Who's the Boss? And my favorite actress <laughs> is Alyssa Milano. But I want to spell it differently. I wanted it spelled A-L-L-I-S-S-A. This is what the girls will grow up calling me. I know. It's just so sweet. And I think that, you know, Gina does the same thing. Like, they pick all these names that they like. It's weird. It's so much like the Ariel Castro thing where he's like, you can't go by your real name. Because the baby can't know you as, you know, yeah, Gina like, de Jesus because I'm going to, because I'm going to take, I'm going to take these kids out and about, which is fucking weird. The kid that you have, like, they don't know how fucked up I am. So I'm going to be able to parade them around. Yeah. So at this time, he also started to operate a print shop called Printing for Less, where Dugard acted as the graphic artist, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And she was really... How did she learn how to do that? He got like a Canon printer and he got a computer and she just started tinkering. I mean, she had nothing but time. Yeah. And again, like her memoir does not go into full detail about like it was constant raping. Yes. But he didn't... I'm not trying to lessen his fucking horrendous shit, but I don't think he beat her as much as Ariel Castro did with the other girls because, again, she was 11. So even, like, Gina was 14. That's, like, 11 and 14 is a very big difference. That's the difference between grammar school and high school. She was very submissive, and she she admits it. And she's like, that's probably why people thought I had Stockholm Syndrome is because, in a way, like, that was, like, a paternal figure to her, like, a fucked-up paternal figure. But, like, she did love him in a sense that, he provided for her and she didn't know any better. Ariel Castro was also Puerto Rican. I don't know how to take that. <laughs> fiery. Yeah, I don't think and I don't think fiery is part of race. So I don't know if I want to go there. I was just joking. <laughs> God Sorry. Damn. I'm just wow. And then this Philip fucker, he's just high on acid all the time. Yeah, that too. Or crank. Acid is not really too much of a violent drug. But crank normally. Is. Yeah. Part of it is that, like, he fucked up on a business card or he was, she was like, I could make that better. And then she started helping him. And then he was like, damn, you're good. Okay, now slave labor. And she liked it, gave her fucking something to do. So while she was, like, raising her two daughters and homeschooling them, she was, you know, designing all these, like, business cards and flyers. And there is this crazy story, and I can't fucking find it now, of course. One of the clients that she had, or that Philip had, was like a woman that was running like a missing and exploited children thing. And she had made like a brochure or leaflet for like what to do with like stranger danger. And like JC Dugard corrected a typo on it. That's fucking insane. I know. She could have been like, I'm JC Dugard, come help me. You know, and she didn't because she was fucking terrified. It seemed like she had a a couple opportunities to. Yes. And and I don't want to like fault her on that because again, 11 brainwashed. We're talking like she's been in captivity now for 10 years and she's got two daughters. It's not like she can just run away. You know, totally. So during this time, Dugard had access to the business phone and an email account. Yeah, I know. But she doesn't understand what the internet is though, because she lives with a psycho. Well, two psychos and two babies. I've known the internet since I was really young and I get the concept of it and I've gotten the concept of it over many, many, many years. But when you're just kind of presented with the idea of email and shit, you have no idea what the fuck that is. It's like weird magic coming out of a screen, you know? 
But Still is. Th- yes. <laughs> she says, another customer indicated that she never hinted to him about her... Ch- oh, yeah, she would actually meet with clients, too, face-to-face. Isn't that... That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Was she just, like, in chains? <laughs> no, like, they finally, like, I think they would... Li- they didn't let her live inside, but they would let her, like... They would let her clean and shit, and when, like... People, I think there was even a fucking time when a social worker came over and she was like, hi, it's fucking crazy. I can't. I'm totally I can't. not kidnapped. <laughs> yeah. During this time, she had access to the Internet. She writes, and this is straight from because, like, I found that very hard to grasp. And so I wanted to take it straight from her words. She says, thank goodness for the Internet. And she says in parentheses, I know what people are thinking. And the answer is yes. Yes, I did think about using the Internet to find my mom. But Philip told me and convinced me that he was monitoring everything I did on the internet and that he would find out each and everything I did on it. He said the computer kept a record of everything and he could see it anytime he wanted. End parentheses. So there you go. She was terrified to make a wrong step because Philip would find out. Like Philip is God to her, unfortunately. If not for the internet, I don't think I would have been able to educate the girls at the level I did because she was abducted when she was in fifth grade. So she's like, yeah, I had a fucking fifth grade education. If it wasn't for the Internet, my kids wouldn't have learned anything. And what's so sweet, too, is that she was really good at graphic design and printing things. And she did have access to a printer and the Internet. And she said that she made these like awesome worksheets for her kids to do. Not only like it's just amazing how she was able to make fucking anything from the pile of shit she was dealt. kind of reminds know? me of also, again... Amanda Berry. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Where they basically set up that schoolhouse yeah. for her kid and, like, how they would, like, pretend to cross the street when they were going across the hallway mm-hmm. and, you Just know... getting her prepared for life I outside know. of the I know. I know. Now. Amanda Berry and J.C. Dugard are very much echo each other in it. And that's... A, but, again, Amanda Berry was almost done with high school. Okay, which is fucking very different from being 11 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Like Amanda Berry, like I'm not trying to say that she's like this temptress at all or anything because it's fucking not true. But she had a boyfriend like she was turning 17. She had a job like she knew the adult world. A she wasn't bit. 11. She wasn't fucking 11 years old. Right. Exactly. I know. So that's actually where we're going to end it today. Spoiler alert, which we've already given you. It's a it's a fairly happy ending. <laughs> like, and luckily none of those fuckers are out yet. So do tune in next time for a non-bummer of an ending. <laughs> yeah. For once. For once. Well, I, I know, guess- I mean, I, the Castro one was not a bummer of an ending. He fucking killed himself and they're all good. Yeah. And Richard Gere ended up not putting a gerbil in his butt so that was a happy ending and that's about it i can't try to think and liz didn't die liz did not die that's good because i love her very good um (laughs) i was about to say johnny gosh but nothing good came of that some laws 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 that's what we need is more fucking laws like we said, we'll finish up the J.C. Lee Dugard story in our second installment of our final episode on kidnappings for this round. But for this next I do, 15 minutes, I really I love a good survivor story, man. I love survivor stories. It makes me not hate my life. I don't hate well, my life, by the way. Wow. <laughs> It just makes me happy that there are sometimes good things in this world in the horrible genre of true crime. I get it. Yeah. There's so, a there's a lot of serious bummer in the true crime yeah. realm. So when people come through these kind of things, it is... It's heartwarming. Yeah. It actually warms my heart. So you can check us out on TC Dumpster on Twitter. Our true crime dumpster Facebook group. That's uh, where it's all happening. True crime dumpster on Instagram. And we're on all the podcatchers. So if you hate iTunes and pod, you know, whatever. I'm not talking shit, Apple. Don't cancel us. Um, but we're also on Stitcher and Spotify and probably everywhere else. Who knows? 
So you can find us. Just say True Crime Dumpster three times and turn around and counterclockwise. Yeah, in the bathroom and look in the mirror and we'll be there. (laughs) We'll be there. We'll jump out of your trash can and be there. So have a great week. We love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.